Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. This episode of the Smart Economy Podcast is part of the series focusing on decentralized finance, better known as DeFi. In episode three of the DeFi series, I chat with SciKeeper, the founder of Saffron Finance. Saffron Finance is a risk adjustment protocol that distributes yields according to liquidity deposits in particular tranches and offers an insurance fund that also generates yields. The protocol currently operates on top of Ethereum, Avalanche, KuCoin Community Chain, and plans to launch on NEO. In this conversation, SciKeeper and I discuss his path into DeFi, the trade-offs of being an anonymous founder, his outlook on DeFi's opportunities and constraints, preferences for building in bear markets, multi-asset tranching systems, using stablecoin yields for insurance funds, how the team chooses blockchains to support, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. SciKeeper was the first anonymous guest I've had on the show, and I really enjoyed chatting with him. I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Today, we are joined by the anonymous founder of Saffron, SciKeeper. How are you doing? Doing great, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Should I call you Sci or SciKeeper? What do you like to go by? Sci is fine. You can call me Sci. I think uh, Smart Economy podcast listeners will right off the bat notice that you're using a voice modulator. Could you tell me a little bit about why you're choosing to be anonymous in this space and kind of the decisions that led you down that path to undertaking this because it's going to be a full-time role to ensure that you don't dox yourself. So why are you anonymous? What were the steps that got you there? And what are the considerations you always have to keep in mind when you're communicating online and protecting your identity? So when you design a protocol, you want it to be as decentralized as possible. I think the anonymous founder archetype is such that you can create something that eventually will be distributed throughout the community and you don't have a single figurehead that's looked towards you know that doesn't seek fame doesn't seek attention and as an anonymous founder i have that from the core of my belief system and it's resonated through the software and through the decisions that we make when developing saffron for example you know we don't have anyone who has like a central point of failure That if you say, okay, if you take away Tim Cook from Apple, it's gone. Or, you know, if you take away, you know, anyone who's known as a big leader or like a powerful leader in one of their companies or anything that they're doing and they're gone and it's totally over. In this case, you know, I'm just an anonymous person who's coming to the world with this idea, developing it, you know, kicking off a DAO. Maybe I'll have an outsized representation and an outsized amount of effort in the very beginning. But over time, this will reduce and the DAO should take on its own life and the DAO should replace, you know, this entity with everyone else who's doing work, maybe, you know, dozens, hundreds of devs. Eventually the protocol will sustain itself and it'll become big enough and it won't need somebody to sort of lead it. I think in the very beginning, it's important to have play that role. And I'm doing that right now. And I think DeFi still has 
a really long time to go before you know we can really take off the training wheels and kind of just let it glide on its own. But to set the wheels in motion, I think you know this was the best path to take. Also, I've seen you know if you start a project or you start something with a real identity, it becomes tied to all the previous things and all the previous baggage coming along with that identity. And that's just not good because then people will see the protocol code and they'll conflate it with, you know, what might be that person's background, even things like where they were born or physical things about their location or their person that other people make assumptions about them. But none of that is actually relevant as far as protocol operates. So to be able to get away from those biases and sort of remove those influences from the protocol and from the design of the software, I decided it would be best to do this anonymously. And it's had some interesting effects. So the rest of the team also, you know, most of them prefer to be anonymous. Some of them are docs. You know, some of them are on camera making videos. And like yourself, you know, you're now part of the Saffron community. You're on video like talking about Saffron. And I think that's fine. I think eventually, you know, there is going to be a mixture. Everyone wants to be anonymous. It is a lot of work, like you said. Uh, you know, there's a lot of considerations that have to go into this. And you know, one wrong move and everyone's next, right? So it's, it's kind of difficult, but at the same time, I think it leads to a better outcome. I'm a very strong believer in philosophy behind code. And I think that the philosophy of an anonymous team is different than one of a docs team. And it leads to different outcomes. And I think those are positive. There are some trade-offs. We can get into the trade-offs. But I do think that overall, it's more positive for a decentralized system to start with anonymous founding. Yeah, I agree. And it's kind of rare. Uh, the longer we go post Bitcoin and like post Monero, you know, this ethos in the early days of cryptocurrency was very much like uh, privacy, sovereign freedom, and things of this nature. But as the industry just kind of expands and grows, people want to have their names out there and they want to be able to grow with the protocol that they might have created. So it seems like fewer and fewer teams are choosing to be anonymous these days. So it's really interesting to be able to pull your ear and hear a little bit about this philosophy. I guess before we kind of like jump into the DeFi part of this episode, maybe I want to ask you as a devil's advocate, what are the potential considerations of like a malicious actor who's choosing to be anonymous, like uh, Sifu, for example, who uh, had ties to Quadriga, which was an exchange in Canada that ended unfavorably. And then also, you know, these ties to the Ohm protocol, where I'm not going to say Sifu was the reason why the protocol failed, but once his identity was doxxed, there were a lot of questions that surrounded it. So while you you have this opportunity to not have baggage associated with previous projects you've had, what are sort of the risks and ways to maybe mitigate these risks for potential bad actors who are just operating under a new identity? Yeah, I think that that's something that is really unfortunate about being an anonymous founder. I think that that trade-off that I was talking about, the main one is having the potential for abuse of people's trust. So if you are a bad actor and you want to hide what you're doing, probably being an anonymous founder or an anonymous actor in space is your best bet. I think that that over time becomes less and less relevant, especially if you structure things in a way where there isn't any trust involved. Of course, it's very difficult to have a completely trustless system. 
And I don't think any system right now is completely trustless, maybe Bitcoin to a certain extent. But if you release the code in such a way that there isn't any keys or there's no, um, you know, there's nothing involved with decision-making that needs to be made by someone who is a bad actor, then it's fine. The issue comes in when you have someone who has like a large amount of a token holding that is doing something like borrowing against it and then selling, sending the USDC to exchange, and then eventually it gets liquidated. You know, these kind of sneaky moves that some anonymous founders use to kind of delay people finding out that they're actually dumping without actually dumping yet. Those are the types of things that are obfuscated and can be abused by anonymous founders and obfuscated and kind of hidden behind like the blockchain record. If no one's looking, they're not going to see it. So yeah, that is an unfortunate case. I think people just need to be more diligent. I think at the end of the day, people could have taken more responsibility to look into the movement of tokens and seeing like, okay, well, there's way too much over leveraged here. And what are people doing with the funds that they borrowed against their over leveraged coins? Why is this happening on such a large scale? You know, it almost doesn't matter that it was Sifu taking these actions or your team members taking these actions. Anyone doing that, even if they aren't identified, you know, that's definitely like the behavior of a bad actor. I think only after it came out that, you know, this was the person that had done these other things in the past was that relevant. So I actually don't think it's super, like, it doesn't really follow that an anonymous founder is the one that would be doing those things. But I do think it does help obfuscate. Of course, in security consideration, obfuscation is not really going to get you very far. But in many cases, when timing is involved, practically, it does make a difference. So I think we just need better due diligence. I think we need better transparency and accountability for like where token flows are going. And I think if you have a community like Ohm or a community like MIM, where there are figureheads that are on Twitter that have thousands of tens of, you know, even hundreds of thousands of followers, where the protocol success and trajectory depends on their cult leader status, that becomes, I think, an issue for the community because you'll see something like Terra, for example, where it gets too big too quickly based on a meme or based on just like the growth because it's so popular and not because the protocol actually works, right? So you can see that causes an issue. We've seen that very many times in the past. So I think like maybe Ohm would have been better off just growing organically they had a great meme, right? They had a great narrative and, and the people followed it and they really liked the idea. And I think most people that got into it for the fog memes or whatever eventually found that they liked the protocol, but it wasn't actually providing so much value. You know, I think all of DeFi is down across the board, but especially the ones that were super popular because they, they aimed really hard, right? That causes an issue because now there's a difference. There's this irreconcilable gap between the protocol's actual value and speculative value based on how popular it is. Anonymous founders could also be very popular. I don't think that that's something that they are precluded from doing. But I think the philosophy that I've taken personally from my position is not try to become too popular just for popularity's sake. There's always a middle ground between getting the protocol out there, marketing, and actual code. But I think if you want things to be valued at their fair market price, you should be focused on the code and maybe focused on how that's going to be generating revenue for the holders. Yeah, that's a uh, fair insight. It's also kind of prescient that we get to have this conversation on the heels of the Terra Luna collapse. And this is the second time stable Algo coin has collapsed in 
assuming that's what Ohm was. I'm, I'm not super versed into the fundamentals and mechanics of that project, but to see two major collapses in the past year, both projects that had like kind of a large following around a figurehead is just kind of telling. And um, I guess maybe even giving a little bit of credence to the approach that you took with Saffron. So before we jump into Saffron is and what makes it so unique and different, maybe you could just share a little bit about why you decided to build in the DeFi space. You know, there are so many different areas in the cryptocurrency realm these days. There's NFTs, there's DeFi, there's DAOs, there's stable coins, there's all these different aspects and areas. So could you just tell um, a little bit about the path of why you went into the DeFi pool, for lack of better words, and maybe just in general, what is DeFi to you and what does it represent? Absolutely. So I became interested in DeFi, hearing people talking about you know, lending and borrowing on, on chain. And I have a traditional finance background and I've been following some of the earlier kind of like DeFi protocols, like BitShares, and also there was kind of counterparty on Bitcoin for a very long time. But it really started taking off and gaining TDL and having people deposit and earning an APR. Things like that started happening, I think, early 2020. And that was all on Ethereum. And, you know, I had an interest in Ethereum at the time. I had an interest in finance and DeFi. And I saw it really gaining adoption. Right. And I think back in the day, people thought Ethereum's killer use case was going to be like a prediction market. And then people thought, like, oh, maybe it's just ICOs. And I didn't really think that those are super interesting. I think definitely tokenizing companies and assets on chain is interesting. ICOs, not so much, just because of kind of like the way that they evolved. But when I saw DeFi, I was like, wow, I can see how this can lead to profits for people that are looking for alternative investments. But it's so risky because there's so much potential for bugs and there's so much potential for price fluctuation that we need to you know, do something that mitigates those risks and gives people that come from traditional finance or even people that are just regular people that want lower risk, don't necessarily want 20%, 120%, 2,000% EPR. They just want to have something that's akin to a savings account or akin to like the risk profile of a savings account with the expected returns, maybe a little bit higher because it's a newer opportunity. And there's more interesting stuff you can do. Things are decentralized. There's fewer middlemen, let's say, right? So it's a potential for a gain in efficiency overall. And I thought that was really interesting. So yeah, that's how I got into DeFi. And how that evolved into the Saffron was from my traditional experience. I had seen different deal structures. I had seen different investing structures that have multiple different tranches. And what that basically means is there's usually a higher risk and a lower risk tranche, maybe even multiple tranches where you have a different investment profile. And what that basically means is in some cases, if you know some credit is bad, you know, there's bad credit in the deal and you know you can't get money out of certain sources, the safer tranches get paid back first. So in case of a default or in case of any issues, the lower return tranches will get paid back first, so they're more insured. But if there's no issue, then you know the higher return tranches, they took that extra risk, they're getting the extra reward. So simply put, with tranching, you can separate the different return profiles from high and low risk, and those either get higher or lower returns. 
based on which one you choose, and that's more likely to be appealing to certain types of investors. So I thought there's nothing in DeFi that does this. Well, actually, there was BarnBridge. We ended up shipping before they did, uh, which is interesting. I didn't even know it existed until after I launched it. People were like, hey, isn't this just BarnBridge? <laughs> but anyway, so Saffron V1 was that structure. And we even had, you know, chain link price protection against Bitcoin. So you could put, you could start farming Bitcoin. And if the price went down, you'd actually get a higher return than people who, you know, didn't want to get that price protection. So very, very interesting things that you can do. I saw a lot of opportunity for new things that could be built. And I thought, this is a place where I can apply my skills. And here's people around me who, you know, I've gathered to work on Saffron with me. They're all interested in blockchain tech and have been working in blockchain for a long time. You know, we all came together and started making this app that we thought was kind of like a void in the market and would be helpful for DeFi. Yeah, Saffron has a really cool tranching model that I do want to get into in a little bit. But while we're still, so to say, jumping out of the airplane and, and the parachute's out and we're getting, we're still at the high 10,000 foot level, before we get into like the five foot level of what Saffron is, I do just kind of want to pull your ear on one more broader topic around DeFi. And you kind of touched on this while you were talking about why you built Saffron, but maybe just from the perspective of somebody who's so steeped in DeFi and working in this day in and day out, what are some of the things that DeFi has going for it right now? And what are some of the things that are really hurting the broader, I guess you could call it asset class or category of blockchain? But what does DeFi have going for it and have going against it right now? The best thing DeFi has going for it is swaps. I think Uniswap V3, uh, you can see Dan Robinson tweeting on Twitter about how eventually all swaps will be on Uniswap. I'm very bullish on different swap types. I like how we have now Bancor V3 that was released a few days ago. Different types of mechanisms for swapping with different parameters. Bancor, for example, has impermanent loss protection, which is really a big issue with being a liquidity provider on these exchanges is that you have this impermanent loss. And in fact, V3 is an improvement for large traders because you choose your exact parameters of impermanent loss, whereas V2, you're kind of just uh, pooled in together with everybody else. But I'll spare you the technicals of my opinions on those protocols. Overall, I think swaps are super important. If people want to trade, let's say ETH or USD, they can do that on-chain. They can do it in the best way possible. You know, we're kind of in a race to the bottom situation right now, where you have Curve that originally had like very low, I think it was like four, six basis point trades, right? And they have this like super efficient stable coin swapping algorithm, which is based on sort of like a constant product, but uh, has like different parameters that make it more favorable for swapping stable coins. So you have lower price impact, you know, the slippage isn't as bad. I think all these ideas are very cool. And being innovated on-chain, I don't even see them being innovated anywhere else. So that's really awesome to see not only a decentralized version of swapping, but also different types of decentralized swapping that have different parameters and completely different from what you would see on a centralized exchange. I think it's very cool. You know, you're given this kind of blank slate, especially with evolved smart contract platforms where you can pretty much program anything you want. It's completely different from the paradigm of a centralized exchange and swapping on a centralized exchange. So I think that that's super bullish for DeFi. I think swaps, probably the biggest thing is where you're going to see the most sustainable yields. I mean, where are you going to find a three-digit APR on DeFi right now, right? You're either going to look towards 
a really new coin that's emitting tons and tons of unsustainable yields, or you're going to look at a really popular trading pair like ETHUSDC, which for the past few days has been around 70, 80% EPR, you know, that's huge. And I think if people are looking for APRs in DeFi, if they're looking for sustainable yield, if they're looking for where the future is going, I think that swap platforms are going to just get bigger and bigger. Especially, you know, you see Coinbase yesterday releasing news that they're enabling DeFi access right from the Coinbase app. What does the Coinbase app have, like 100 million users or something? So all these people are going to be onboarded into DeFi. They're one click away from swapping on Curve. They're one click away from swapping on Swap. The profit is there. You know, the motivation is there. Everyone's racing to the bottom when it comes to fees. I think people will eventually flow their capital into those sections of DeFi. So yeah, so I'm super bullish on that. The biggest problem that DeFi has right now is twofold. I think within crypto, there's so much attention on other things that are just more profitable, like speculating on NFTs or speculating on a new L1. We're seeing where like all the capital is going to flow. That's probably secondary to the bigger thing. That's a problem for DeFi, which is macroeconomics in the world. I think the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, you're just going to see people putting money into bonds. It really sucks to have to look at macroeconomics every day and be like, all right, Bitcoin's down, so like I can't do anything. You know, <laughs> uh, that's really awful. And it, everyone is like kind of subjected to this macroeconomic cycle of Bitcoin. And if that's going down because, you know, risk investments and risk assets are just not desirable at the time, people are going to offload stocks. They're going to offload Bitcoin. They're going to get into cash and they're going to put it into a long-term savings account because they expect the rates to go up. Or they're going to put into where they think is more stable, maybe even real estate, even though, of course, you know, raising rates is supposed to be bad for real estate. Uh, the real estate market is just insane right now. So there are so many outside of crypto factors that are so difficult for crypto at the moment that makes it super hard. And then also you're seeing like TVL in these protocols just going down over time. And that's a function of two things. It's a function of, again, rates being higher outside of DeFi. And also the fact that if token prices are down, most of the time TDL is down and also APR is down. So it's a compounding effect. It's sort of like a, a death spiral effect. I wouldn't say that it's a death spiral in a way that it's going to go to zero, but it's definitely like a super multiplying effect, maybe even an exponential effect. If prices are down, yields are down, TDL is down, and it just keeps going down from there. So that's the biggest challenge. But again, it's cyclical. I think there's going to be an upswing later on. You know, I think it's going to go down. It's going to go up. Bitcoin has been doing that for years. I think people are surprised to see Bitcoin down 60% from the high. I'm not so surprised. Yeah, I think that's a challenge for sure. That's a really interesting point that you brought up and something that I kind of wonder myself that my day-to-day is spent as a content creator. So despite the fact that we cover cryptocurrency and that, you know, I feel the swings as just like a general investor, speculator, whatever you want to call it. I'm not actually out there building a DAP that has a token or building a DeFi platform or anything like that. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit about your insights into what is morale like when the market goes down and you see your TVL on your platform drop 60, 70%, despite the fact that nothing really changed from a few weeks ago other than price of coin go down. So how does that sort of market fluctuation impact your team being that you're so tied to the price of a token and, and the tokens that people are swapping? 
Depends on which team member you're talking about. <laughs> Some of them are more uh, invested in DeFi. Others don't even really look at it. Morale is a really interesting thing. I think our team morale is pretty high. Personally, I think we've done a really good job building a team. I don't think that macroeconomic outlooks really affect team morale too much. What it does affect is ease of which we can raise new capital, ease of which we can get new partners, ease of which we can like get on the phone with somebody who's, let's say, an institutional partner and they want to make a crypto app, but it's like, you know, who, which one of their clients is even going to use it? So how can we, you know, build new business? How can we reach new users if all the people that are thinking about getting into crypto are not interested? So from a team morale perspective, yeah, maybe I could do a better job at that. But I think that we've done a pretty good job. You know, it's a pretty interesting question. I, I didn't expect you to ask that. I don't think team morale is too affected by the market. Definitely the community managers have to deal with people on Telegram, you know, part of a decentralized app is having a community on Discord and Telegram. And like some of them get emotionally upset or some of them are rationally offloading tokens during this. They want to reduce their risk. And that can be difficult for some of the community managers or you know people that are involved with responding to those, those comments. But for the most part, you know, I think it helps that I've been through this many times and I'm kind of like guiding the team through like, okay, it's just a bear market. Like it's going to be fine. We have plenty of runway. You know, we're just going to build through it. And in fact, one of the things I wanted to say was it makes it easier for me to focus because during the insane bull market run, there's so many people that are just opportunists and they don't really know what they're doing or you know, it's hard to weed out like who's serious and who just wants to make a quick profit. So bear market's always been really good for building. I think this has been trending on Twitter lately a lot and it was trending last year was bear market too. But it, it is true. There's a lot less distraction. There are fewer distractions. There's more focus. So actually, you know, it's a pretty good thing for teams to come together and be like, look, we're fine. We're going to build through this. We're going to come out with a product at the end of the day that people are going to use. Maybe it's going to take a little bit longer than we anticipated. And we should be honest about that. But it's definitely not something that's totally killing the vibe. I think we can continue building through it. And yeah, I mean, it, it might be good for me to reconsider how the rest of the team feels because. I've been through this before and maybe they haven't. So actually really great feedback. Thank you for that, Dylan. I might take a second look at how the rest of the team feels or maybe ask what they think about the, the bear market because it could be affecting them differently than me and I hadn't anticipated that. And morale is super important for the team. Yeah, this is uh, if we are indeed in a bear market slash recession, whatever you want to call it, this will be my second full bear market. I went full-time with Neo News today at the depths of the bottom of the last bear in October 2018. So as a builder and someone who communicates and covers builders, these are the best times ever because you have direct access to founders. They're not being inundated by PR firms or people out there trying to make a quick buck. You can more easily interact with and and connect with the builders, developers, founders, leaders, all of that. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. During the bear market, my my pockets hurt, but communication's never better. So it's always kind of interesting to hear how market cycles may or may not impact projects. Now, we've been kind of chatting for a long time about like bigger philosophical market-wide approaches. And one of the reasons why I was really excited to talk to you is because I think that Saffron is building something that's really unique, 
that I have not seen in the crypto space. But the last time I did research or look into tranches was unfortunately the credit default swaps from the collapse of a lot of different markets in 2007, 2008, 2009. So this is possibly the first time that we get to examine the tranche structure in more of a positive manner. So I guess um, while we jump into what Saffron is, maybe you could just give us your elevator pitch for what it is. I know you covered tranches a little bit earlier. So maybe if you could just give like your basic 30 second overview of elevator pitch so that people have a better understanding as we go further down the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Saffron is a risk adjustment protocol. And a risk adjustment protocol will take what could be seen as a risky investment that has a high return and chop it up into different buckets of investment. So you can have a bucket that's super safe, but gives you lower yield. And on the other side, you have a bucket that's super risky and they're taking on more risk and they're getting higher yield. They get paid for that. So in a decentralized way, you can essentially sell insurance to the lower risk bucket and that profit is compounded as additional yield for the higher risk bucket. So that's like the easy way to explain it. And what we're doing is basically making this risk exchange where anyone can come on from finance, they can choose underlying yield, then they can choose a higher or lower risk profile, and then they get returned based on that. So that's really interesting here is that you can provide insurance or you can provide that backstop to the lower risk product by offering something like a stable coin as the backstop. So if you want to earn, let's say there's you know 300% APR on a platform, but you have to be farming with like ETH and then like another token, how do you get exposure to that yield with a stable coin? Well, you can offer insurance in the stable coin, and then you get a percentage of the yield that comes from whoever's taking that price risk, but you're offering insurance in a stable coin. So your stable coins are farming on top of Saffron, which is sitting on top of this platform. And now your stable coins are making, let's say, 280% APR. And you know, Saffron takes a little bit of a cut and the other tranche gets a little bit of a cut. But you've gained exposure to that yield. You're auto-compounding it. Saffron will do all the auto-compounding. It farms the yield. It converts it into stable coins. So you're making a high yield on stable coins. You're taking a risk on this platform, but you're not taking price risk on the underlying assets. So that's something that's really interesting about Saffron is that the native result of this risk exchange is the transformation of yield from these risky assets to something like a stable coin or the opposite, right? You can go either way with it. Anything, you know, the parameters are adjustable. So I think that I like to say Saffron is not only a risk exchange, but also a yield transformer where you're taking like risk on this platform that might have high risk asset yield, but doesn't necessarily have high stablecoin yield. You can provide insurance with a stablecoin, and then you're getting exposure to the risk of that platform. But if you're confident in it, you know, if you could put USDC into the platform and make 200%, you probably would. If you've reviewed the code or you think it's like secure or whatever, other people might say, hey, it's too risky for me. I have some ether. I want to get some yield. But you know, I'm not assured that I'm going to get my money back. You know, These guys might run away with it. So you're going to buy insurance, and then the other insurance is also insured in stable coins. So even if the asset goes down or whatever, you're totally covered. I think that that's probably the best way to explain Saffron really quickly, is that 
you know, by offering this insurance product, by offering this yield swap product, a lot of interesting things come from that. So it's it's a bit more complex than just saying I'm going to LP into a higher risk tranche, which I'm accepting the fact that if there's a mass liquidation event, this is the first tranche to go. There's more complexity that's added into it with the stable coin insurance fund. That's correct. So in Saffron V2, we added the concept of multiple tranches. In V1, we had a plan for that, but we only had senior and junior tranche, which is low and high risk. In Saffron V2, uh, our current pools are able to do three different tranches, uh, and the tranches can be whatever. They're totally open-ended. The code is much more flexible. And what we've done is, you know, for our first pools, we're launching senior tranche pools with an insurance fund. So you can have a senior tranche and a junior tranche, which is like higher risk. Let's say you're farming NEO, and then you have like a NEO senior tranche and NEO junior tranche, and then you have like a USDC insurance tranche. That's possible in Saffron V2. And in fact, our white paper takes into account the three tranche system in pretty much the whole thing. But you can remove one of the tranches, you can add a fourth tranche. It doesn't change anything. It's really just a matter of like how many different levels of risk you want and which assets they're priced in. And then, yeah, if you look at the white paper and like you get rid of the junior tranche, that's basically what we have live now. So there's a lot of different ways that this can be applied. And yeah, you could do the same asset for every tranche. You could have different assets of different tranches. And that just changes the risk profile of each tranche, depending on what the users want. We thought that it would be interesting to sort of do this like uh, this multi-asset tranching system. And it seems to be working pretty well. And I personally, I like it. I think it's interesting. Yeah. So it seems like, uh, not to like call you out or anything, but it seems like you're slowly adding pools over time. So what are kind of the criteria for the pools that you add to Saffron? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge in the past and even with the current version of V2 is that we really don't want to release anything that's not fully audited and, and really secure. So, you know, one of the challenges that we've had is just releasing code very quickly because, you know, when it comes to releasing a product that's supposed to be low risk, if we don't get enough audits, if we don't spend enough time on the code and there happens to be a bug, it defeats the entire purpose. So we've been super careful to make sure that everything works and everything is like totally audited and 100% secure to the best of our ability, right? And we're trying to increase that ability in the future. So yeah, I think that the biggest thing is being able to release the next version of Saffron V2, which has, let's say, a more repeatable structure so that it doesn't have to be re-audited every time there's a new pool to a certain extent. We have to deal with the fact that connecting to other pieces of code changes the code a little bit, and we are going to have to undergo some audits. But making something that's super repeatable is kind of like the next thing on our agenda. And it'll make having a product that is able to launch new pools without having new audits a possibility. So that's what we're looking towards next. And definitely you know, feel the community's frustration and criticism when it comes to launching new pools quickly. I think that. Had we anticipated this to take so long, we would have done it a little bit differently a year ago. But yeah, we're on the right path to making sure that there are pools that are going to be audited and released more quickly. That's kind of like our main priority right now. I hope it didn't come off as uh, throwing salt in in an existing wound right now. I personally don't think that adding pools too slow is an issue when the team is really taking security first. And it sounds like 
This is one of those instances where it's maybe three steps back and then five steps forward in terms of the scalability for new LPs you'll be able to provide. And I'm sure that connecting to new chains actually increases the complexity behind this. So Saffron doesn't just operate on top of Ethereum, but you guys are also porting to NEO. I believe I saw that you guys are operating on top of the KuCoin community chain now. So there's got to be a lot of nuances that come not only with adding new LP contracts, but then also chains. So that kind of brings me to an, an interesting topic that you were just talking about with the insurance fund. And you mentioned being able to, say, for instance, trade NEO in an LP, but you mentioned a USD insurance fund. So is Saffron creating a multi-chain insurance fund as well, where I can potentially LP on the KuCoin chain or on the NEO chain and then receive or participate in the benefits of USDC insurance from like the ERC-20 USDC? That is something that we've really extensively looked into. And actually, this comes from an insight from an investor in ours that wanted to get Bitcoin yield. And at the time, we were designing the product around, I think it was Pangolin, which had a pretty good Bitcoin yield on it. But when we went through step-by-step with them, how this process would work, we realized that there's a risk that a lot of people take for granted or isn't really something that people are looking closely at, which is the bridge risk. And of course, bridges have failed in the past. But from an institutional's perspective, they're just thinking, all right, well, I'm buying Bitcoin and I'm giving it to these guys and they're going to get yield on it. But the actuality of the matter is if we wanted to get the highest yields, we'd have to you know, buy wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum and then transfer it to another chain and then farm on that chain. But the problem is, what if the bridge goes down? And I don't even think there is even another insurance protocol on chain right now that has bridge insurance. It's just too risky. So that is a good question. Do we want to do this? Yes. What are the challenges? So one of the big challenges with having a multi-chain farming is that how do you pass information back and forth between chains? I think Chainlink is probably the best way to think about doing this going forward. If you have Chainlink oracles on every chain, they can potentially pass information from one chain to another. And then we would be able to create some sort of farming system that, let's say, assures like a NEO farm with a USDC on Ethereum ERC-20 token. That could be possible. It's going to require Chainlink working on NEO. It's going to require Chainlink working on Ethereum. It's some sort of way to pass messages between them programmatically. There could be a way to do it with a DAO structure where you have like multiple signers doing, you know, key signing, and then there's like an insurance process that happens that the DAO is like triggered and humans do the work and they're paid to do the work of processing this DAO you know, request, basically. I don't know how well that scales. I think other DeFi insurance platforms on Ethereum and on other chains have a problem when it comes to paying out scalable or being able to scale into paying out multiple different claims. I think Saffron handles this really well by giving everyone like an LP token share of a pool that gets you know adjusted in value based on the, the outcome and everyone just gets paid out immediately. But yeah, there are many ways to skin a cat. I think there's certainly a lot of opportunity for us to do multi-chain farming and multi-chain insurance. I think it's a little bit early to do that. We're going to need a more robust Oracle structure, message passing structure. There are some chains themselves that have these parachains or like subchains where you have like cross-chain interoperability. Cross chain message passing. 
that's kind of like a requirement from a technical perspective, how this would get done. I haven't seen anything that works really well. There aren't really any good examples of that. Maybe we can be the first ones to look into it. It's definitely something on our radar because it's right up the alley of risk adjustment. And it makes total sense, right? Bridges are failing all the time. Even other chains are failing. And it would be good and beneficial for our users to have cross-chain farming. So yeah, I think there are just a few things that are required for that to work. And I was even thinking, you know, maybe we could build our own, but it's too big of a project. You know, let Chainlink do it or another you know, Oracle provider do it and see if we can piggyback on top of that and use it when it's ready. So would you say that Saffron offers farming on different chains, not necessarily that it's a cross-chain farming platform? Yeah, that's right. For now. For now, yes. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about the insight that you and your team have when you're exploring new chains to build on top of. I have been covering NEO since 2018, but it's interesting to see an Ethereum ecosystem-born DeFi project expanding on NEO or exploring NEO first. So what are kind of the metrics that your team looks for when looking to build or expand onto new networks? So I think the reason that we got interested in NEO specifically and other networks comes from the fact that when we were into Bitcoin early on, we were trying to explore and do different things with blockchain technology. And just a little bit of history, you know, Bitcoin maximalism is not a new thing. Bitcoin maximalists have existed since Bitcoin was pretty much the only thing. In fact, I remember going to like Bitcoin meetups or, you know, very early on when people were interested in Bitcoin in like 2012 and 2013, people were meeting about it in real life. And if you talked about anything outside of just Bitcoin, you would be literally laughed at. In fact, I was at a presentation where the guys from Ripple did a presentation and they were laughed out of the room. And I think they were giving like 10,000 XRP to everyone free there. And he ended up not doing it. Like it was a cliche, but literally the dude got laughed out of the room. So, you know, people were not exploring different things or they were resistant to exploring different things early on in Bitcoin's history. And I saw that and I saw it as kind of a missed opportunity for people that just were kind of closed-minded or hyper-focused on Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's great. I think putting effort towards it is great. But I don't discourage people from exploring what other opportunities there are in blockchain. And I think when you look at it in a holistic approach, you have to see that there are different chains, they have different priorities, they have different parameters, they have different features, and all of them are interesting in their own ways. So for Neo, for example, you know, we can write in C Sharp, it's something that our team is really good at. And it's something that's unique for Neo. There are a few other chains that give you like a bunch of different languages you can write in, but specifically, you know, enterprise software. People that have been writing enterprise software or have been doing you know, professional C-sharp writing in the past, you know, that's going to be a natural thing for them to get into and build. So I really like that. And I really liked how you know, we could quickly get a team member who is interested in that on board and doing that very quickly. So that was one of the reasons we looked into Neo. You know, one of the reasons we looked at KCC was we saw this is a really small and new project and people are going to want insurance to get into these DeFi platforms because it's too new. You know, they're going to think, well, some of them are going to fail, whatever. And we did the same thing with um, with Harmony. We actually had Saffron running on this thing called Holy, which was a contract that had around 3,000% APR, and it actually failed. And we ended up using the insurance system to pay people back. Not a lot of people know this. I think there was like maybe 10, 15 people farming on the experimental pool, but it was the first time Saffron was actually used to pay people back 
based on an underlying contract that failed. So, you know, these things actually do happen. And these high APR scenarios, they come around and, you know, sometimes those contracts have bugs. And, you know, if you're in the senior tranche, you're in luck. So that's kind of like how we handle the situation and how we look at things. We think there's new opportunities. There's different opportunities and feature sets. There's a lot that can be offered by different chains. You know, we're not Bitcoin maximalists. We're not really EDA maximalists. We think that DeFi as a whole could use a risk-adjustment platform. And that's what we're trying to provide. So are you guys focusing on expanding beyond just EVM? Are you specifically looking for other VMs as well so you can kind of build out your portfolio? What are you going to look for in the next chain that you guys add support for? Uh, practically, it comes down to TDL right, and APR. If there's a big amount of TDL and we can bring a good amount of risk insurance and risk adjustment to that chain, that's where we're going to aim and try to fire. It comes down to the practical use case and adoption. Sometimes, you know, we have our own resources, right? We can be speculative and try to predict where the market's going to move. So it's not like we're always going to lag behind and try to follow what everyone else is doing. I think in a lot of cases, we've done that. But it's really difficult, right? So there's a balance between going where the obvious capital is going and trying to follow it. And then there's more opportunity in taking a more risky approach, which is like, all right, there's nothing here yet. And if we build the first thing, we'll have a first mover advantage. I think that a little bit of both is definitely the middle ground where you need to kind of operate them. Absolutely. I want to talk about the SFI token. Uh, you have an interesting supply cap of 100,000. How did the team land on that number? I had seen a few other projects in DeFi, like Yearn was doing like super low supply cap. And this is one of those things where unit bias comes into account, right? Some people will think like, wow, it's up to $100,000. You know, it must be super crazy. Like it's so crazy. It's worth more than Bitcoin. And then that kind of like gets its own headline. This is purely a marketing thing. I think mathematically it works out the same either way. I kind of liked it. It was easy for me to like rock what was happening. An investor has 1%. They have 1,000, right? They have 100,000. So it was pretty arbitrary, I would say. But I kind of liked the lower supply, especially because we went with liquidity mining. And that was kind of having every two weeks, sort of like Bitcoin has a having. I wanted that scarcity to be like a property that SFI has. So yeah, we went with a lower supply cap to make it look more like a scarce token so that people would get the idea from the very beginning. Like, okay, we're not inflating forever. I think there are some protocols that inflate forever. So we're doing the opposite, right? And that was kind of the idea behind why a low supply cap was chosen. It doesn't really make sense if you really think about it, but that idea was kind of like what we were trying to communicate. And I think it, it effectively communicates it, even if it is kind of like a nonsense metric. I mean... This industry is so nascent that you never know what the one thing is that kind of makes you stand out is going to be. So there's no reason not to experiment. Are you guys planning on having SFI live only on Ethereum? Are you going to have a standard on NEO and on KCC? What is the plan for that? And if you do go cross-chain, what's the plan for uh, monitoring the whole 100,000 supply across multiple chains? Yeah, I think this is something that Almost every project has to deal with. Actually, just last week, our Avalanche bridge went live. So we're now as live on Avalanche, which is very cool. Right, We're on KCC through the KCC bridge. It's a risk. This is not really well known. But when we went live on Phantom Network, there was a bug in the bridge code. And there was like an infinite mint 
on Phantom of SFI. So actually, right now, if you go to the Phantom Explorer and look at SFI, it's not great. There's like trillions and trillions of SFI. We ended up paying everyone back, and it wasn't really a great law. I think it was like $60,000 of SFI were lost or something at the time. Everyone was made whole. So yeah, we shut it down very quickly. But when we were on multi-chain in the early days, that was when bridges were brand new. So these bugs are to be expected. It's difficult, right? You never know when you're going to get a Telegram message at 4 a.m. That's like, hey, everything is totally ruined. So that's just kind of like part of DeFi. It's part of the reason we exist, because it's risky. But I think, yeah, we, we have to just make our choices and select things carefully, make sure that we choose the right bridges, make sure the bridges work, and have like a contingency plan for when a bridge fails or when there's like, there's now 200,000 SFI because a bridge fails. What do we do? That's a risk we're taking. The industry as a whole, I believe, is taking the position that bridges are worth the risk. And I think that that's a fairly rational position to take. So is it safe to assume that every chain that Saffron operates on top of, there's going to be an SFI standard on that chain? Yes. I think that that's a good idea. It's not necessary, actually, because we could take the funds that are generated on other chains through the Saffron app, dip them back to ETH, and then that gives you know the SFI token on ETH value. Uh, we don't need SFI to exist on other chains to launch Saffron on other chain. Great question, by the way. No one's ever asked me that. But technically, there is a separation between the app and the token as far as other chains go. When it comes to Ethereum, we've decided just to make it easy. And because most governance activity is on Ethereum, the SFI token and its value accrual will happen on Ethereum. But for other chains, like let's say we launched SFI on NEO, we don't need SFI token on NEO to do that, right? We could just launch Saffron.Finance. Click on Neo on a chain selector. Now you're connected to the Neo network. You're farming on Flamingo or whatever it might be. Those, you know, 12.5% of the profits as a protocol fee go back to Saffron. But we don't necessarily need the SFI token on Neo to do that. So it's very modular. You know, it might even be a good idea to launch Saffron on some chains without the token bridged in case we think that, you know, the bridges aren't good enough or the chain might go down. And then you have like, you know, 12,000 SFI that are stuck or burned forever. Whereas if we just launch the app, then it's like, okay, well, you know, the app is there, but none of the tokens are there. So, you know, it's not really like a permanent loss for us. Another reason cross-chain farming might come into play, by the way, is if, you know, we launch on a super risky chain and like all the insurance is on ETH or all the insurance is on NEO or another chain, then we don't have to have any of the capital at risk. Everyone's covered. And, you know, the junior tranche takes that extra risk for their profit. Right now, the... Saffron platform allows for LPs on KCC and LPs through some Uniswap and SushiSwap LPs, but there's also single-sided staking. So what is the single-sided staker's benefit for staking SFI and what is that being used for for the Saffron platform, that, that staked SFI? Right now, that staked SFI, that pool is simply a rewards pool. It's just a thank you to users that have been holding the token. And it's something that draws people to the main page of the app. I think it's the number one question we get from retail investors, you know, people that come into Telegram. They're like, where can I stake my SFI? I want to see. So we try to give them that as often. Right now, it's not even from emissions. It's just from our own team, like personal share that's been minted through the team wallet in the past. We stopped minting, I think, over a year ago, so no new SFIs. Instead, I think we're at 92,000, something like that. 
at 100,000. So because you know macro conditions have been going down, we're just not minting, and we're just using the existing SFI that we have to pay out. I think it's like a seven percent APR. In the future, you know, when we have serious protocol revenue, SFI buybacks are something that could be voted on. I don't want to make any promises, obviously, for liability reasons, but you've seen other DeFi protocols vote on things like buybacks, things like burning, whatever. Personally, I'm a fan of like the buyback and lock, so we could like. For example, change that emitting SFI pool that's just like a 7% staking pool into emitting locked SFI that comes from protocol buybacks. That's a possibility. There's millions of different ways that we can do it. But I think once the protocol has like serious revenue, then we can make a good decision. And you know, the community will decide. I probably won't even vote. I haven't voted on the last few votes, although you know, I have an opinion on what should happen in the DAO. I've been trying to kind of stay away from voting just to see what other people think about what should happen. So this is one of those situations where I feel like maybe I'll write a proposal or I'll help write the proposal. It can go online. And then it's like, what do we do with staking? The community will decide, you know, we'll do this with it. We'll do that with it. Maybe they'll shut it off. In fact, even Compound had a vote. I posted in their thread, actually. I think it was like three weeks ago. You know, should we shut off comp emissions? And it was pretty contentious. It almost came down to the wire. They ended up not shutting down competitions. They were going to shut it down to zero, but ended up not doing that. So yeah, I mean, it's possible that that goes to zero or totally just gets deleted eventually. Yeah, I think single staking, just because people are, they like it and it keeps them interested. You know, I don't think it should go anywhere. I wouldn't vote to make it go down to zero. I think you would want to see emissions go down to zero, but you definitely don't want to see staking go down to zero. That's my opinion. Yeah, for certain market participants participating on ETH-based AMMs uh, might be cost prohibitive because they weren't early enough to get ETH when it was cheap. And so now, you know, these 0.003 ETH fees turn out to be 7 or $8. That means a lot to a newer market participant. So to be able to single side stake SFI, it was kind of like a no-brainer for me just because I didn't want to have to research what the other LPs were. So it was interesting to hear a little bit more about the emission schedule and that it's uh, some of the rewards are actually taken from the team's wallet. So I guess wrapping up, I did want to ask you this question because it's just really interesting to me. You're anonymous. And also at the same time, Saffron has institutional partners like Coinbase Ventures and Dragonfly Capital. So how do these conversations go down when you're meeting with VCs and, and big capital firms? Are they used to dealing with anonymous founders? Are there extra hoops you find yourself having to jump through to prove your non-malicious intentions? What is that like? It's pretty simple. Most of them don't care and are cool with it and don't even ask. Some of them, at the end of the conversation, we have a whole conversation for weeks, days, whatever. They're just like, hey, by the way, you have to sign this paper with your real name. And it's not going to be sent to anyone outside of me and like the legal. And, you know, I've in the past said no to that. And in the past said yes to some of them. So I would say pseudonymous is really a better way to describe my identity. I think there are other pseudonymous founders in DeFi. Not going to name any names. Some entities will just operate under an anonymous structure. And they're totally cool with that. And even the bigger ones, actually, you'd be surprised are very tolerant of that type of thing. And some of them, just like when it comes down to the wire, they have to answer to an auditor, they have to answer to some 
legal structure or accountability structure that they have set up internally, you know, maybe external pressures. I, I would say it's about half and half. So yeah, it, interesting question. And I think everyone in DeFi is kind of pseudonymous. You know, you're really only getting as the real and on guys where you're talking about like Monero or like any of these like standalone L ones. I think DeFi for the most part is pseudonymous. It's a pretty tight knit group. Even some of the more more anon quote unquote founders. There are people that know who they are. So it, it kind of is, like I said in the very beginning, more of a philosophical thing than it is like a protect my identity because we're doing something wrong thing. So at the end of the day, it isn't so important to maintain full anonymity as it would be if you were like launching Monero, for example. So I think like building a protocol that eventually becomes super adopted and super decentralized uh, comes from that like pseudonymous foundation. I think it's like super advantageous. Awesome. And uh, last question, granted that we're on the smart economy podcast, what does the smart economy mean to you? It means everyone's able to use the economy on their smartphone. Everyone's able to use it and is interested in the economy, has a say in the economy without having to go through this loop of banking structure and like all the requirements and leeching that comes from that, right? So there's a lot of value being lost. There's a lot of barriers to entry. People are left out of the economy. They're not gaining as much value from financial institutions. I'm into DeFi because I like to build to fight against that structure, to make sure that people have value, that they can save value, that they can gain value without having someone like, hey, I'm going to get a cut of that. Or like, oh, your account's overdrawn, like here's a fee or any of this nonsense. It should be transparent. It should be fair. It should be equitable to everybody. We all have smartphones. We're all able to get on the economy. Everyone should be using these things. I think that the old structures are eventually going to crumble. And I think that we're going to be here to build what comes after that. It makes things fairer and more equitable to everybody. Awesome. What a great way to end a great interview. It was super cool to finally be able to hop on a call with you and talk about Saffron. It's been a pleasure to follow the project since it splashed into the NEO ecosystem. And it's been fun to use the platform. And um, I can't wait to use it on multiple chains moving forward and looking forward to the next version of version two. So thank you so much, Sai, for coming to join the Smart Economy podcast. It was a great conversation. And I really appreciate the time you had to share with us today. Thanks, Dylan. It was awesome. Great speaking to you. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? It was really interesting to dig into SciKeeper's philosophy for building insurance protocols in the DeFi space, which is rooted in the fact that users should be able to choose a risk profile when participating in DeFi platforms. Also, in a bittersweet sort of way, it was kind of refreshing to hear that the insurance fund successfully paid out participants in the liquidity pool that went to zero. And while Sai mentioned macroeconomic trends and speculative actions as negatives for the DeFi space as a whole, he also seemed very excited about the future and potential that swapping can offer retail users. With that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.